Yeah, happy Father's Day to all the dads out there. So I'm excited to be one of you guys. I don't know if we all can say we deserve a day to be a bit indulgent and to be treated like masters and kings of the world, but we'll take it. So um, if you're newer here, my name is Frank. I am one of the pastors here and who has the privilege of serving and, and teaching and preaching during these times. And over the course of this summer, our goal is to commit ourselves to taking a deeper dive into the life, the teachings, and the actions of Jesus, because our goal is to know him better. And it's so funny, because oftentimes we go to church, the, our, our ambition in going to church is like, all right, what's the one thing I learned today that I can go and put into practice in, in my life? What's the one thing I need to do next? And, and what do we want to do is shift gears this summer and focus more on knowing than doing. And knowing will always drive some doing, but our goal is relationship with Jesus. That's always been the goal. And sometimes we can miss that in the midst of lessons learned and things we want to take and apply to our lives because we're action-oriented people. And so this summer, we want to shift gears and just say the priority is just getting to know him. Not that that's never the priority otherwise, but just focusing on summer, not so much on, on what action steps need to be taken, but just how can we know him better. And so over the course of the past month, our focus has been more on the identity of Jesus. Who is Jesus? I mean, we're supposed to know this the answer to this question, right? Jesus is the Son of God. He is Messiah. He is Savior. But when you take a step back and you've got all these, you know, Christian words and ideas and you wonder, what do these titles really mean? And how does it, how it is all supposed to impact us? And how does it change how we might see and understand him? And so that's where we've been the past few weeks. We started off with understanding Jesus as the Word, like all-powerful, almighty truth. That truth is not something that we speak or share. Truth is embodied in a person, embodied in Jesus. And that was a radical idea. And then we talked about Jesus and the idea of him being illegitimate son and how, that's, how that affected how the world saw him and how he saw others as well. And then last week, Andrew's sharing on Jesus bearing the title of son of God. That's huge. That's a weighty title, right? And so... Today we're going to take another step, and we'll close out our series with another title, if you want to use that term. But before we do, because our series is focused more on knowing, it's, it, we made it an Awaken Q&A series. And for those of you who aren't as familiar with what Awaken Q&A is, basically it's a time where if anything that's being shared in this time triggers a question, comment, or thought, text it to AwakenQ&A at gmail.com, and at the end of our time, we'll go ahead and take a few moments and tackle those. Because I think part of being a church community is that we feed one another and, and build, build into one another's lives, and, and I'm excited about having that opportunity to bounce thoughts and ideas off of you guys. So with that, we're going to spend our final week of this series in particular focused on a name that Jesus used more than any other to describe himself, and that name is Son of Man, Son of Man. So have you ever thought about nicknames? It's kind of a weird thing. Like, have you ever, I don't, I mean, all of us have them, but we never think about why do we have nicknames. I used to think the reason why we have nicknames was to shorten a name. Like, if your name is Bartholomew, calling you Bart is just 
more convenient and easier, right? But that's not always true. Sometimes the nicknames are longer than the name itself, and so it's just a strange idea. Sometimes nicknames just happen because someone gives it to us. Sometimes we give ourselves a nickname and hope it kind of takes with everyone else, and, uh, but the best ones, the most important ones are the ones that stick, so looking around, I bet that like what, close to a third of the people in here have a nickname that's more familiar than their full given name. So my co-pastor, instead of going by Walter or Walt, which I think would be really cool and funny to call him consistently, he goes by Vashi, right? My brother-in-law, instead of calling him Justin, we call him JT. My wife, I can't even remember the last time I called my wife Gisela because she's been Chelita to me for over 21 years now. And so I've had my own. It's kind of hard to shorten Frank, so it's kind of like Frank, but I, I did used to get called Cotton Top back in my perm days, and that's a long story, but if you can imagine me in a perm, that's just really, really bad. Um, and then I, I was called Train Tracks back in my braces days. My college days, it was Fufu and Fufu Lou. I still get that every once in a while. My, uh, my kids call me Daddy and Poppy. My wife calls me, you know, Sweetheart and Chino, and so we all have nicknames, right? Everybody's got, got your own Here's the point, right? All of these nicknames that, uh, that different people use because they've given it to us or we even use for ourselves, Jesus had a few of them as well. And surprisingly, the one he felt most comfortable calling himself was Son of Man. In fact, he uses it over 80 times in the New Testament. So where does this nickname, where does this title come from? So it's not unique. We'll start there. It's not a, uh, a brand new idea that Jesus introduced this idea of him being son of man. As a matter of fact, son of man pops up numerous times in the Old Testament, and it's a title that's loaded with a lot of meaning. Before Jesus ever took it on, it was loaded with a lot of meaning. And so a great example, so there's a number of different passages um, where this idea of son of man in the Psalms, but the one we'll focus on today is found in the Old Testament, and the prophet Daniel used this idea, this term son of man, to describe the coming of a great Messiah. So in Daniel chapter 7, verses 13 and 14, it shares, as my vision continued that night, I saw someone like a son of man coming with the clouds of heaven. He approached the ancient one and was led into his presence. He was given authority, honor, and sovereignty over all the nations of the world so that people of every race and nation and language would obey him. His rule is eternal. It will never end. His kingdom will never be destroyed. That is big. Daniel's talking about someone who's coming, a son of man, who will be given authority by the ancient one to rule eternally, over a kingdom that will never be destroyed. That's amazing. And whoever this son of man is, he's going to be a king that's loving, just, kind, forgiving, and again, eternal. On TVs and, and on interviews, he'll never say the wrong thing, which is frustrating. Sometimes we listen to our leaders and they're like, oh, did you really just say that? You know. And, and when he's meeting other politicians and other leaders around the world, he'll always do the right thing. If you can imagine a ruler whose goodness is so complete that no one under his rule ever has to question 
the actions that he takes. Because everything that he does, we are confident, will always be for our good. That is the hope. That is the promise that's being evoked from this prophecy in the book of Daniel. And more than just being a prophecy, this is a hope that the Jewish people embraced. They read these verses. They were taught these verses. They memorized these verses. It wasn't some pipe dream for the Jewish nation. They believed in this. And over the course of the 550 plus years between that prophecy and the time of Jesus, there was a lot of persecution. There was a lot of hardship and that this nation went through. And oftentimes in those dark moments, the hope that we're able to cling to is someday what God has promised is to give us a leader who will rule with justice and kindness and love and who we can follow and believe in. And we have the confidence in knowing is always looking out for our best. And then Jesus shows up. And Jesus is born from Mary, who's a relatively common woman. Because if you can imagine these conversations that have been going on, it's like, gosh, I wonder what line he's going to come from. I wonder what family, but it's going to be one of great power and, and recognition and fame. And so here's Jesus born to Mary. There are rumors that he was an illegitimate child because Joseph wasn't his dad which is going to put him in a pretty weird situation. And he was a weird kid. He was the kid who'd rather read and read scripture than come out and play kickball. And there's a story about how when he was 12 years old, he got lost for three days in the city of Jerusalem, and his family was all traveling on the road. And instead of going out and partying and hanging out in wherever you would hang out in Jerusalem, he was there in the temple listening to rabbis teach for three days. What a weird kid. And so... Jesus then at 30 begins his ministry, and as he's beginning his ministry, he starts using this title, Son of Man, to describe himself, and that didn't go very well, because again, if you understand, you've been for 550 plus years, this idea of Son of Man has been this ruler, eternal ruler over a kingdom that is great, never-ending, indestructible, indestructible, indestructible. So when Jesus starts giving himself this title, there was a certain degree of resentment by the religious leaders who understood what that title was supposed to mean. And so some of this happens uh, in, in the scriptures in the New Testament. I'll share a couple examples. Uh, Matthew chapter 13, verse 41 says, Jesus is speaking, and he's talking about himself, and he says, the Son of Man will send his angels, and it will remove from his kingdom everything that causes sin and all who do evil. And the angels will throw them into the fiery furnace where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. And so you can imagine people hearing this and saying, seriously, Jesus, you're telling us that you're going to control and command the angels of heaven. Or how about chapter 16? For the Son of Man will come with his angels in the glory of his Father, and will judge all people according to their deeds. And I tell you the truth, some standing here right now will not die before they see the Son of Man coming in his kingdom. And so, seriously, Jesus, you're going to be the one that not only commands angels, but you're going to judge all of us. Yours is the kingdom that will never end and never be destroyed. Really? And so these are the words and these are the ideas that incited the Pharisees and the religious leaders against Jesus. Who is this weird, illegitimate young man, uneducated young man, to come and claim to be the son of 
man. That was an act that they saw as unexpected, maybe even arrogant, maybe even presumptuous. So, I don't know how many of you follow the NBA, and I apologize again because I'm using another sports analogy because this is the stuff I can relate to. So, I don't know if you guys are following the NBA, but it's the summer of LeBron again. Uh, LeBron James is a free agent, and the whole basketball world is following what team he might join next. And the reason why LeBron James and what team he might join and why we're all waiting with bated breath is because LeBron James is the best basketball player on the planet, right? And also one of unquestionably the greatest basketball players who has ever lived. Now, in the NBA, for those of you who don't follow the NBA, I'll just kind of give you some insight. In the NBA, there is a term, a nickname that's given to the greatest basketball player of all time. How many of you guys know what that nickname is? It's GOAT, right? GOAT, G-O-A-T, greatest of all time. So some argue that Michael Jordan is the GOAT. Actually, most people will probably say Michael Jordan is the GOAT. There are a few who argue Bill Russell is because he's got 10 rings and, and he's got the most. And then there are some who legitimately argue that LeBron James should be the GOAT, the greatest of all time. And the trick is there's no perfect way. Like there's no specific analytic that says, okay, this shows that you're the greatest of all time. So it's a bit of a debate. But where everyone would agree is a conversation about who the GOAT is really only revolves around these three players. So Aaron Gordon is a forward with the Magic. Most of you guys probably didn't know that. And if you did, NBA nerd, thank you. So um, Aaron Gordon's also a free agent this summer. Nobody cares about where Aaron Gordon is going except maybe Aaron Gordon, right? Aaron Gordon is a good player. He really is. And if you think about it, if you make it to the NBA, you are like Elite. You are one of the greatest ball players on the face of the planet. So he is really good at basketball, but in the NBA, amongst his peers, he's an average to maybe a bit above average player, right? He's close to all-star level, so he's a good, good player. But nobody cares where he is going, and as good a player as he might be, he is certainly not in the conversation for greatest of all time. So if you can imagine, what if the media all of a sudden started saying, Aaron Gordon, he's in the conversation for GOAT? We'd be like, Whatever. we just dismiss it. It wouldn't pay attention to it. Or even worse, if Aaron Gordon started calling himself the GOAT, that I am the greatest player, the greatest NBA player of all time, we would laugh at him. We would mock him. We'd call him insane or irrational or something in that way, shape, or form. And that's not an insult to Aaron Gordon necessarily. It's just saying the actions, the way you play, does not reflect the title you want to take. The Pharisees saw Jesus as Aaron Gordon right? The, the, and, and they felt like the title doesn't fit who you might think you are, who we think you are. And so because of that, they were seeking to silence him, confound him, dismiss him, and even got to the point where they wanted to kill him because they didn't think the title fit, not on a guy who was born from a nobody family, born illegitimate, we don't know who his daddy is, and had no formal training like the formal training that we've had. Son of man is not a title that should fit someone like that. That could have been it. I don't know. I wasn't there. The other possibility is it was a title they didn't want to fit. Like, Jesus, I don't like the things that you're sharing. The vision of kingdom that you have makes me uncomfortable, and it's not the type of kingdom I'm excited about dreaming about but Jesus didn't back off. 
Again, he used this term for himself about 80 times in the New Testament, and he didn't back off when he was threatened. He didn't back off when he was challenged. He didn't even back off when he was on the cross. And the reason is because for Jesus, not only did the title fit, Jesus knew that this title belongs to me. Daniel wrote about me, and I'm going to claim it. Now, before we move into why this is all important for us to know, I want to take a few moments to share a bit more about how in the Gospels this title has meaning. Like, like uh, when Jesus used this title to describe himself, he typically did it within three different contexts, right? And so when we talk about the goat, like, like even that when, when if Michael Jordan were to call himself the goat, he actually doesn't very often. But if he does, it wouldn't be like as a golfer because we know his golf swing sucks, right? So even the goat is in a context, in a specific context, it's as a basketball, an NBA basketball player. And so in the same way, when Jesus used this title, he didn't just use it arbitrarily. He used it in specific contexts in a meaningful way to, to be able to say that this is what the Son of Man means for me. And so I want to go through, so before we talk about, well, what does this all have to do with us, and how is this supposed to affect us? I want to be clear on what this Son of Man title meant to Jesus, because again, our goal is to know him. So first, context number one, because again, this is what Jesus is saying, this is what I want to share about myself, so pay attention. Context number one, Son of Man referred to his humanity and work, like the things that he did as a human being. Uh, Mark 2 is an example of it. Mark 2, starting in verse 10. So I will prove to you that the Son of Man has the authority on earth to forgive sins. And Jesus turned to the paralyzed man and said, stand up, pick up your mat, and go home. What is, what is one of the things that Jesus was sent here to do? He was sent to forgive sins. Even more practically, there's a passage in Luke chapter 7 where the Son of Man talks about how, or Jesus is talking about how the Son of Man eats and drinks, and sometimes in excess, right? It actually doesn't say that the Son of Man eats and drinks. It says he feasts, and, and that the Pharisees were criticizing him because of it. They were calling him names, but that's a very human thing to do, to eat, to drink, and sometimes eat more than we should. And that's what Jesus is saying. Sometimes I've done that too. The Son of Man needs a place to lay down his head in Luke chapter 9. So is that a weird thing to think, that Jesus needs to sleep and rest like everyone else? And again, the, times, the, the remarkable fact is not that Jesus needed to eat, drink, and sleep. The remarkable fact is he referred to himself as the Son of Man must do these things. Is it to say that this title fits me, and part of the reason why it fits is because I am human just like you. I am one of you. We are, we are in this together. So our family has watched every Marvel movie that's come out since Iron Man, and, and I don't know if you guys are nerdy enough to go kind of there too, but uh, in, in these movies, the really cool part is we can't remember a single movie where part of one of the scenes was showing how uh, one of the heroes had to go to the bathroom and they had to find a way to unzip that tight uniform and go to the bathroom, right? It's just not something they talked about or having to take a nap because they had a really, really hard day. And the reason for that is not only is it irrelevant, quote unquote, for the sake of the story, but part of the reason is because Marvel wants their heroes to be a little bit bigger than life. Jesus wanted to do the opposite. He didn't want to make him so bigger than life. He realized that it could be seen that way because he's performing miracles and he's doing these amazing things. And part of the way he uses the title Son of Man is to say, yeah, despite that, I am just like you. And it was important that the disciples and the people who followed him and saw him understood this because the humanity of Jesus is what was necessary in order for Jesus to save them. 
which leads us to the second context in which he talks about himself as the son of man, is regarding his suffering, death, and resurrection. In Mark chapter eight, then Jesus began to tell them that the son of man must suffer many terrible things and be rejected by the elders, the leading priests, and teachers of religious law. He'd be killed, but three days later, he would rise from the dead. As he talked about this openly with his disciples, Peter took him aside and began to reprimand him for saying such things. So Jesus also called himself and referred to himself as the son of man when he was talking about his purpose. The disciples didn't get it, of course. If you read the gospel, it's obvious they didn't quite understand what he meant, that he was going to be betrayed, suffer, die, and then on the third day rise from the dead. But the son of man... So, but it was an important part of Jesus' message. And the son of man that was referred to, prophesied by Daniel that would rule for eternity over a kingdom that would never be destroyed, it just didn't always seem to match the message of what Jesus is saying. And what Jesus is saying is, you guys had a vision of what that ruler would look like, but I'm telling you the kingdom looks different. The kingdom is going to be forged at its foundation out of sacrifice pain, and death. You envisioned a ruler coming in wealth, power, and glory, and I'm telling you that the kingdom begins in the ashes of sacrifice and death. But from these ashes will be born a kingdom that will be greater than any other kingdom that has ever existed. It will be golden, it will be compassionate, it will be loving, beautiful, and unstoppable. You'll see, brothers. And here's why it's important for you to know, brothers and sisters, because you're going to be a part of forging this kingdom as well. Your sacrifice, your death will also be, your blood will be the seed of what, uh, on the soil that will, this, this kingdom will be born out of. But it will be a kingdom that will invade every nation, every tribe, and every culture on the face of the planet. And someday, when the time is right, the kingdom will come in its fullness. It will burst forth, and when it does, I will be there in glory, in triumph, to lead it. Which leads to the third context in which Jesus uses the title Son of Man in his ministry, and he uses it when he talks about future judgment and his future coming. Mark chapter 8, if anyone is ashamed of me and my message in these adulterous and sinful days, the Son of Man will be ashamed of that person when he returns in the glory of his Father with the holy angels. In Matthew 25, but when the Son of Man comes in glory and all the angels with him, then he will sit upon his glorious throne. All the nations will be gathered in his presence, and he will separate the people as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. God becoming flesh in order to suffer and die to save the world is not the end of the story. If it was, it'd be a really sucky story. Can I say that sucky, bad, horrible story? The idea of the Son of Man was always about a great ruler who would come in, who would be given great authority to rule for all eternity over a kingdom that cannot be destroyed. That was the vision the Jewish people were given through the prophecy of Daniel. And you have to understand, it wasn't that the vision was wrong or off or misplaced. It was the process, the way they saw it coming to be that they missed. 
The Son of Man will someday return. His first coming was in humility and sacrifice, but the second will be in power and fullness and in glory. So for those of you who have been keeping pace with us so far, feel free if there's any questions or comments or thoughts that have kind of come out as you've been going through this, feel free to text them to awakenqna at gmail.com. Of course, some of you may be thinking, Frank, you're explaining this perfectly. I have no, no questions. That's fine, too. I'm like, thank you. I'm just kidding. So um, that, that could be as well. But anyway, if you have any, it's like, oh, I was th- you know that triggered this thought? Go ahead and text it, and I'm excited to hear about your thoughts on this. And while you guys are doing that, I'm going to take a moment, and I'm going to answer the final question. And the final question is, why does all of this matter? Why does all of this matter? So we'll go back to the idea of nicknames. As I shared earlier, nicknames come to us in strange ways. Sometimes they're given to us. Sometimes we give ourselves a nickname. But you realize the, the only nicknames that matter are the ones that stick, right? The ones that end up sticking with us. And the ones that end up sticking with us, the reason why they do is because they reflect a part of us, a part of who we are, right? Some of them bring up bad memories and, and others, they're nice and only shared or spoken by people who really love us. But again, the ones that stick are part, have become a part of our identity. And so for Jesus, the title Son of Man was a part of Jesus' identity that he wanted to reveal to his disciples and to the world. The title not only reflects, and the cool part about it, as, you, as I shared the three aspects of the context in which this humanity, uh, about his death, burial, and resurrection, and about his future glory, that when he shares it, he's not sharing the Son of Man only to reflect the human part of himself, but also the deity part of himself as well. Son of Man captures both of those ideas. The Son of Man, Jesus, was absolutely human. He did suffer. He was betrayed. He did die on a cross in order to save us. This is an absolutely essential part of his nature and his life, and he doesn't want us to miss the fact that he is absolutely human just like us. In fact, not only was he human, it was necessary for him to be so. The author of Hebrews shares why in in Hebrews chapter 2, verse 14. Because God's children, that's us, are human beings made of flesh and blood, the Son also became flesh and blood. For only as a human being could he die. And only by dying could he break the power of the devil who had the power of death. Only in this way could he set free all who have lived their lives as slaves to the fear of dying. What is Hebrews saying? The author's saying this is, he had to be human, completely human, because it's the only way his sacrifice works. But Jesus was also, in addition to being fully human, also far more than human. He's also God Almighty, who will someday return in power and glory and majesty and over a kingdom that he founded by his death burial, and resurrection. And John, one of his closest friends, shares a picture of what the return of the Son of Man will look like in the book of Revelation. It's an extended passage, so bear with me as I read through it. Revelation 1, 13 to 18. And standing in the middle of the lampstands, pay attention to this description, was someone like the Son of Man. He was wearing a long robe with a gold sash across his chest. His head and his hair were white like wool and white as snow, and his eyes were like flames of fire. His feet were like polished bronze refined in a furnace, and his voice thundered 
like mighty ocean waves. He held seven stars in his right hand, and a sharp two-edged sword came from his mouth, and his face was like the sun in all of its brilliance. When I saw him, I fell at his feet as if I were dead. But he laid his right hand on me and said, Don't be afraid. I am the first and the last. I am the living one. I died, but look, I'm alive forever and ever. And I hold the keys of death and the grave. You know what's really interesting and unique about this passage? It is the only passage in all the scriptures in which, in which Jesus is given an identifiable physical description. In other words, it's the only passage in all of Scripture where this is Jesus' description is given. This is Jesus' passport picture, his photo ID, right? You want to see him? This is the passage you want to go to. So again, why is all this matter? What, what does this matter that he calls himself the Son of Man and the idea that the Son of Man captures both his humanity and his deity? It's because we cannot worship one we do not know. That's why. We cannot worship whom we do not know. And what Andrew and I have done over the course of these past four weeks is we've done our best to try and give you a clear picture and a clear understanding of who Jesus is based on what he told us he wanted us to know about him. Again, we're not making this up. Jesus is saying, this is what I want you to see and know and understand about me. And that's what we've taken a look at over the course of these four four weeks. And honestly, I mean, I've given you an actual physical picture of him, right? His photo ID, his mugshot is up here. This is what he looks like. How much clearer can we get? That has been our goal and our ambition. And we all know that understanding the nature and the person of Jesus doesn't give us a complete picture of him. His words and his actions also kind of have to get included. And we're going to hit that in the next few weeks. But we need to know that if we want to have a relationship with Jesus, we have to know who he is. And that's why we started here in understanding who are you and who Jesus is begins with who he says he is. So that's where we started. This is where we're going to continue over the course of the next however number of weeks we have over the course of this summer to be able to know and understand Jesus better. And I hope that you guys will be encouraged, refreshed, see him in, with new eyes, and be able to get to know him better as a result. That's our hope and our ambition. So let's tackle some Q&A, and looking forward to some of y'all's insights before we wrap up 